We're going to change gear now. I'm going to like share a little bit on our series, Steps of Faith. And uh, the subtitle of that is From the Known to the Unknown. And we've been looking at these stories from the scriptures, Old Testament characters, stories, these people, these men and women, who uh, ancient men and women who have lives that have helped us see what life is like with God. They point us toward journeying with God. And today we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And there's one little verse in Hebrews 11 um, that I want to just pull out now for you. And it's in verse 22. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen. Um, and this is the little verse in that whole line of kind of heroes of the faith. You might call them or men and women, these ancient people who were close to God and journeyed with God. And what it says about Joseph is this. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Fascinating verse. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to preach from that this morning. Well, we're going to. We're going to give it a go. And hopefully it makes sense by the end. Because, yeah, Joseph or Yosef in Hebrew, I mean, we can talk a lot about his life. There's a significant portion of Genesis taken up by his life. Chapter 37 is where we're going to hang out today. But from 39 to 47, his whole life is kind of shared in a lot of detail. So really, somebody needs to make a musical or something about this guy, because there's a lot going on. Um, Joseph was born in Mesopotamia, in a town called Haran, um, at the age of six, and he left with his family to go to Canaan, um, and eventually settled in Hebron. And so when we're introduced to Joseph in Genesis 37, and I'm not going to read Genesis 37 this morning, um, we find Joseph as a 17-year-old teenager, and he's the youngest in the family at that time of 12 brothers. Uh, and Jacob, uh, the father, he uh, had extra favor for Joseph, and he made him a very nice garment, uh, a very nice coat um, to express his love for him. And this gave feelings of jealousy um, to arise within his brothers, especially the sons of Jacob's other wife, Leah. Um, now, some teenagers think they know more than they actually do, <laughs> and I only know that because I was once a teenager, <laughs> and maybe Joseph was a little bit like that kind of teenager because he brought a bad report back to his father on the other brothers, and the other brothers didn't really, didn't really like that, um, so he maybe ticked them off a little bit, but those ill feelings uh, exacerbated, and uh, Joseph, he had these two dreams um, and the dreams portrayed Joseph ruling over them, and I kind of ticked them off, I'm sure, to hear that. There was the, the dream where there was the wheat in the field and the brothers' bundles kind of bound down to Joseph's bundle, uh, and then there was a second dream, Joseph envisioning the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. So he ticked, ticked off his brothers a little bit. I'm going to just run through jo Joseph's whole kind of life story very in a summary, uh, and then we're going to look, look at three points, I guess, I want to draw out from uh, particularly uh, Genesis 37. So the garments, the favor from his father, the two dreams, he's ticked off his brothers, but things do descend soon enough. The tension in that family comes to a head. So here we have a story of family conflict and betrayal. Uh, Jacob sends Joseph out to the fields 
to be with his brothers, and the brothers decide to seize an opportunity to throw Joseph unsuspectingly into a pit. And a short while later, they, they see this Arab caravan coming along on its way to Egypt, and the brothers sell Joseph into slavery um, to the traders to be brought to Egypt where he would be sold to Potiphar. So here we have not only a story of family conflict, but we have a story of human trafficking. And along with that, we have the biblical theme of exile, and I'm going to come back to that later. The story moves on. Joseph is now in Egypt, and things begin to look up for young Joseph. I've skipped through a lot of the story here, of course. He finds favor in his master's eyes. He's appointed to the head of Potiphar's estate. Potiphar's wife takes an interest in him, and he turns her down. Um, and they have this moment where uh, Joseph, um, she's looking for Joseph to have a relationship with him. Joseph slides out of the house and runs away. And that's where Joseph kind of gets this nickname of Joseph the Righteous. But what really happens then is Potiphar's wife spins the whole story, turns the tables on Joseph and says, Potiphar, this Hebrew slave that you've brought into our household has tried to make a, a sexual advancement toward me, has tried to rape me. And Joseph becomes, well, he becomes really, you know, Potiphar is angry at this and Joseph is put into prison. That's really what happens. Um, so going from the trustworthy assistant to Potiphar, now to being put into prison. So here we have a story not only of family conflict, <laughs> betrayal, human trafficking. There's a story now of, as I say, sexual advancement, accusation, deception on the behalf of Potiphar's wife. Now in prison, Joseph's charisma follows him and the warden of the prison takes a liking to Joseph and makes him his right-hand man. And in that, in that time in prison, Joseph has this skill, this gift that he can interpret dreams we know Joseph is the dreamer. He had the two dreams at the beginning with the brothers. And so we have the king's cupbearer and the king's baker who were also in prison. Joseph successfully interprets their dreams. And a few years later, Pharaoh himself has a dream and needs someone to interpret the dream and calls upon the young Hebrews called Joseph to come and interpret that dream. Joseph, who's about 30 years old now at this point, a lot of life has happened. He interprets Pharaoh's dream as a prediction of a famine that is coming. And on the back of that, he advises Pharaoh, this famine is going to come in seven years' time. But for the next seven years, you need to store up all the grain so that when the famine hits, you can survive and your nation can survive. Pharaoh is really impressed with this. And Pharaoh, and Pharaoh appoints Joseph as his viceroy, really his ruler, his second in command, really his VP, um, and tasks him with this responsibility at 30 years old to, to ready the nation for years of famine. So here we have the story not only of family conflict and betrayal and human trafficking and sexual advancement and, and accusation and deception, but a story of a rise to power from prison to a position of significant influence. So, you know, Joseph is now second in command. Then later in the story, we have this climactic reunion between Joseph's family from Canaan 20 years before. They're feeling the effects of the famine, and they come up to Egypt to get the grain that was stored up. And Joseph's brothers, they go to buy this, and they don't recognize Joseph. They don't realize that the, the VP of the nation, the viceroy, the ruler, is Joseph, their brother, who they sold into slavery 20 years before that. Joseph decides to, in his generosity, see how they would react 
and through some kind of maneuvers he pulls, he tests their determination and their devotion to their younger brother. And he's pleased to see that they look after the younger brother. And, and in that, Joseph decides to reveal his identity to his family. And there's like a reunion at that moment. A heartfelt reunion. Jacob, the father, who hasn't seen his son, sent him out to the field that day 20 years ago, never saw him again. He, there's a reunion that happens. The family settle in Egypt. And it's that settling of the Hebrew people in Egypt under good conditions, under the ruler Joseph, that kind of leads on way down the line to the people of the Hebrew people being in Egypt and then coming into slavery and Moses having to come and rescue the people out of Egypt. But this is the precursor to that. So I know two weeks ago we talked about Moses. We're kind of going back in time to talk about Joseph today. Does that make sense? And this is really the precursor for that whole Exodus story. This is how the Hebrew people came to be in Egypt. And so we have... This family conflict, betrayal, and estrangement leading to this reunion over a 20-year period. Here's a story of that. And here's a story also of forgiveness and generosity. Forgiveness and, and generosity from Joseph. He's, he forgives his family and he blesses them and looks, looks after them. And there's a whole lesson really there in, in, in the story about forgiveness. It's the first time in the scriptures that forgiveness is mentioned in that moment. And we could hang out there all day, but I just really want to focus on three things. And I want to draw out, that's kind of an overview of his life. I want to kind of go back to that starting point for Joseph in Genesis 37, where he is sent out by his father to the fields and where he's sold into slavery by his brothers. I want to draw out the theme that I think the narrative, when you study it, points to over and over again. And it's a big biblical theme, and it's the theme of, of exile. It's the theme of exile, and it's a recurring theme in the Scriptures. Um, he's sold to traitors. So Joseph is effectively, he's trafficked. He's effectively exiled from his father, from his father's love, the father that loved him so much. He's, he's exiled from his family, and he's exiled from that journey that his people were on towards the promised land. So by being sold, he's, he's on the outside. He's on the outside immediately. And the language in the narrative is this, that he goes down to Egypt, which doesn't mean that he technically goes south, Although coincidentally, if you look at a map, he does go down to Egypt. What the writer here is trying to say is there, there's a literary device being used there, descent into exile, going down. That language is telling us something, and it comes up over and over and over again in the narrative. The narrative is hinting to something here. Going down to Egypt is the language similar to the way Adam and Eve went down from their Edenic high mountain Eden and out of the garden. And it's spoken about in the, in the story of Cain. Throughout Genesis, this going down is kind of language of exile. And so here we have, in Genesis 37, Yosef, the 17-year-old dreamer, who's had his eyes fixed upwards to the sky in his dreams, going down. Suddenly going down, and, and going down to the pit, and then going down to Egypt, and it's all exilic language here. The pit itself is exilic language. It's a metaphor in Scripture 
for, for death. Death itself is, is this exilic language. So there's all of these layers in this story around this theme of exile. Let me draw it out a little bit further. There's two kind of axes that you could see in Genesis to talk about exile. There's the going from the high place to the low place. That's the going down language. There's also the going from the in to the out. So you got the high to the low, and you got the in to the out. And it's all really communicating exile. That's what all that language is, and it's in all of the stories in Genesis. The Joseph story has both of those going on at the same time. Think about it. Joseph is sent out from the home to the field, and then the brothers betray him. And then he's sent down to Egypt. It's just all literary language trying to tell us that there's something here going on. There's a theme emerging. It's when he's in the fields that the brothers, you know, they throw him into the pit. And interestingly, the brothers, when they come back to Jacob, the father, to try to tell him what's happened to Joseph, they bring the garment, the cherished garment covered in blood, and they communicate to the father that he was killed by animals, when in fact, of course, he wasn't. But again, that story is mirroring what, what Jacob did to his own father, Jacob coming in clothed in animal skin. So there's all of this imagery about deception, about division in family, and about exile, being in or out, or being coming from a high place to a low place. And it's really fascinating, and I would encourage you to kind of dig into that in the story of Joseph. When Jacob the father finds out that Joseph has been killed at that moment in Genesis 37, he says this in verse 35. His family are gathered around him. He believes that an animal has killed Joseph. He's dead, and the family are trying to comfort him. The brothers have told a lie. Joseph's, of course, alive, but not to joke. Jacob, he's, he's dead in Jacob's eyes, and Jacob is grieving, and he says, he wants, they're trying to comfort Jacob, and, and Jacob says no, and he says this, interestingly, in mourning, I will go down to the grave with my son. There's that down language happening all over again, more exilic language, and, and death is a kind of exile. Eden story tells us that, you know, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. And you know that Adam and Eve didn't literally die. They were sent out. They were banished from the garden. So death is exile, and exile means death. And the narrative is fueling our imaginations with all of these images. And I want to kind of just take us for a moment to Psalm 69, because that imagery has been used in the Psalms throughout it, of the pit, of going down to the low place, of being on the outside. Psalm 69 talks about being dead in a flood and in a pit. So the poet in the Psalms is again using this kind of language. So Psalm 69, verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Verse 15, let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. So this this exilic language is framed as being swallowed up in the flood and in the pit and in death. But the, the psalm writer is alive because he's writing the psalm. <laughs> so dead, there's a way to be dead but not dead is the point. There's a way to be like kind of in a state of death but be kind of literally still alive. It's kind of the language throughout the scriptures and in the psalms. And it's fascinating. Again, that image in Genesis 3 teaches us more than anything. The day you eat of the fruit, 
you will surely die. And it kind of, it's a connection to exile, to being on the outside. So here's, here's a three things I'd love to kind of share with us this morning. Here's the first thing. Joseph's in the pit. He's sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And then he ends up in prison, in Egypt, in exile. So he's in the pit of pits. He's in the pit of pits, which is maybe where many of us can find ourselves at times. We're at the lowest point in our lives. We're at the lowest state. We've been betrayed by people who love us. Maybe that's your experience, friends or, or family, or you've been, there's been re- a rejection or a betrayal or a lie or a manipulation, or we've been pushed to the outside. And maybe you can identify with that story, Joseph. That's where he's at in this moment. He's really done nothing wrong here, and he finds himself in the pit of the pit. And here's the first point I want to bring out, which is that God is with him in the pit. It says this, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had apparently treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him in prison. And it says this, but the Lord, in verse 21, was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite. So there's a sense here in this journey going down into the pit, into Egypt, into exile, that kind of he's a forgotten man. He may as well be dead. And yet, that's where the Lord is. The Lord is with the lowly. The Lord is with us in our weakest moment when everyone else has ran out on us. The gospel is that the the Lord is with us in his faithfulness. That's the first thing I wanted to share. And I want to add a little component to that, which is this, that God doesn't prevent this from happening. All this kind of stuff happens to all kinds of people throughout the scriptures, and yet in the midst of it, God is still there. In fact, the fact that God doesn't stop something happening doesn't mean that he's not in the midst of it. And we see that in this story. And remarkably, fast forward into the end, where there is a good news story, Joseph, in Genesis 50, he says this, and I want to read it from the message. He says, He's speaking to his family at this point and offering that forgiveness. You walked out on me, and I was in the pit of the pits, but then he's now second in charge, and he says this, don't be afraid, do I act for God? Don't you see all you planned? uh, You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for good. As you see all around you now, life for many people, the results of his preparation for famine and the way he was blessing and supporting the nation. Easy now, you have nothing to fear. I'll take care of you and your children. So there's a remarkable journey that Joseph has gone on as a man of faith who has been trusting in one person alone throughout this whole journey, knowing that he's not, even though he's not prevented this from happening, that journey where he hit the lowest of lows, God was in the midst of it. And I kind of wonder this morning, because I've been in the lowest of lows. We've all had those moments in our lives. And maybe today you're finding yourself in a moment like that. Or maybe you're just dealing with family conflict or division or rejection. Or you kind of feel on the outside of something. Whether it's friendship circles or business circles or religious circles. or And the gospel says this. 
that those who find themselves there, God is with them. God is with them. And this is the story of the scriptures, God with us. Here's the second point that I want to draw today, which is that God's dream is different. So we have um, Joseph the dreamer in the story with his dreams. I want to talk about God's dream. Um, Division in family, hostility, being away from home, in exile. These are the opposite of God's dream for humanity. God has a dream for humanity and the Genesis stories and all the stories of scripture are telling the raw story of how human beings can treat other human beings and how that's not the dream of God. Joseph is taken into exile and the rest of Joseph's story, if you kind of go on and work through it in your own time, is a reversal of all of that happened. Every single thing is reversed. All those images, all those exilic language, all those consequences are done, are turned around completely. Turned around completely. He is taken up from the pit. He is elevated to a place of authority. Of course, he's deceived by Potiphar's wife, but he ends up second in command to Pharaoh in the nation and bringing his rule and justice and generosity to the nations and taking in his family and blessing them. And there's an amazing good news here. He can't get any lower than Egypt and in the pit and in prison, the pit of pits, and yet there's something about this that God wants to kind of scream over it and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God has a dream for something different. For us, listening to this story as modern readers, we might not immediately see it like this, but essentially this is a story of human trafficking. This is a story about a person who's been kidnapped, separated from their home, who's in a vulnerable state, who's sold to traitors, who's taken to a place where they have no identity, no money, no opportunity, who's suffering and surviving on their own. And this is not an ancient reality. This is a reality that has affected people in this community, in this city. We know people who have experienced this today. It's a modern day lived experience. People being trafficked, taking away from where they call home. And that's not the dream of God. God's dream is about the opposite of that. And if there's anything we can learn from digging into the raw stories in Scripture, it is that God's trying to reverse all of that. This goes to a very sober place, this story. I've kind of taken us to a very sober place this morning. It's raw, but human beings can do horrible things to other human beings. Horrible things. And the dream of God is the opposite of that. And I want to preach that this morning. Joseph's father thought that Joseph was killed by animals and the blood was on the garment. But he wasn't far wrong because his brothers behaved like animals, throwing their own brother into a pit. Human beings are capable of so much harm and horror. And yet the gospel story, the story of God, is that he's at work in this mess because he has a dream for the way that we are to live, to bring harmony to the human community. We even see, if you go back to the story of Abraham and Hagar, Hagar in that story is an Egyptian slave. And that story is how Abraham treats her 
And of course, he banishes her to death in that story, which is a terribly sad story. And now in Joseph's story, he is now a Hebrew person under the slavery of Egypt. The whole tables have turned. Again, Genesis is just telling us something here. The biblical stories portray human stories, human realities, this portrayal of human behavior, which is sometimes awful. And it's the same today. Nothing has changed. There are stories out there that we know, lived experiences that we know, that you could describe as being the pit of the pits. And the gospel is the story of God's dream to turn that around. And so God is not only with us in our own particular circumstances, but God has got a dream for this whole project. He wants to reverse that. What is the opposite of exile? But home, belonging, a place at the table, an identity where you're loved and you're accepted and you're forgiven and you can taste of the grace feast around the table where there is harmony in relationship between one another, whether that's a friend or a brother or a sister. This is the dream of God. And in the story of Joseph the dreamer, God's dream lives on. Second point. Thirdly, there's an invitation in this story for us to dream like God to join that dream. Because that weird little verse that I read at the very start in Hebrews, do you remember it? It said this, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. What, what is that verse all about? Well, I want to contend that Joseph lived for something more than just his own life. He had his eyes set on something beyond his life. That's why he gave instructions about his, his own death and his burial, because he was living for something beyond him. It says he could see what was going to happen the, to the Israelite people. He reigned in Egypt for 80 years until his death at the age of 110 before he passed he made his brothers promise to take his coffin with them when they left Egypt for the promised land. And after his death, Joseph was buried. He was embalmed in Egypt. But indeed, when the Jews left Egypt many years later, Moses made sure to locate Joseph's tomb and carry his remains to the land of Israel. And so you can visit that today if you go there. And Joseph kind of had some kind of vision of where this was going. He, he was living for his people he was beyond himself. He was looking to the future. He was trusting in the Lord. He was with him. He was dreaming alongside God for what the human community could look like. And I think it's kind of a remarkable invitation to us, not only to know that God is with us, that God has a dream that goes completely to reverse all of the horror we see in this world and the injustice and the pain, not only in our own lives, but in society but that there's an invitation for us to participate in that and look beyond ourselves in faith. We have no idea what the future holds. The future is uncertain in that sense, but we know our God and we can place our trust in him. And that is what faith is. Faith is not certainty, but it is trust. And so in Joseph's story, we have a legacy someone living for an unforeseen future that they will not experience for themselves, but they are dreaming with God about what that could look like. 
dreaming of a time when the whole of creation is redeemed and at peace, dreaming of a time where human beings are loved and welcomed home from exile, dreaming of a time where families are reconciled, dreaming of a time where broken relationships are restored and healed, where rejection and the wounds of rejection are healed, where the lies that have been spoken about you or about me or about us are revealed in grace and in truth and exposed, where the low are brought high out of the pit, where the Edenic high mountain of Eden is restored, the city of God, Zion, the walls restored, the city restored, where dignity is restored, where identity is returned, where hope is realized, where shalom is reigning, the kingdom of heaven on earth, where there's no famine, where there's no slavery, where there's no human trafficking, where there's no immigrants living in hotels around the block here, but they have their place that they can call home, where they have jobs that they can work, where we can participate in harmony together, no abuse, no suffering, no accusation, no manipulation, no exile. I guess I'm trying to contend for us today that in this little story, big story about Joseph, there's an invitation for us to dream <laughs> with God, to dream with God, to, to get in on God's dream for humanity and to dream knowing he's with us. We experience it when we're at the lowest of lows, personally, He's faithful and with us. We quickly begin to learn the heart of God, that he has got big dreams for us, for our communities, for our families, for our friendship circles, for this world, for this city. God's dream is massive. And I, there's an invitation for us to get in on that dream, to dream with God. And like Joseph, set our sights kind of further in just our own lives and to look with eyes of faith and live in faith, trusting in the God who's with us and the God who's about this great reversal. So my prayer today is that we would dream about a place called home, <clears throat> a place where we can belong. And part of our job, I guess, our calling as Christians is to bring that to earth now, to live that reality now, to work in that direction. The Lord's prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, as, as it is in heaven. So not only are we to be dreamers, but we are to be participators in the project. So when we get around tables, when we get into our homes, when we eat together, when we invite those who've been exiled in, we are participating in the dream of God. We are participating in the story so let's have our imaginations fueled. Let us dream along with God for what might be possible. Let us have our eyes fixed on that kingdom of shalom being realized on earth. I'm going to invite Matt and Caitlin up. Uh, we're going to worship. And behind me, we have the bread and the wine. And here we have the table, which is, if you're new here today, um, we practice an open table, which means this table behind me is not Redeemer's table. It's not my table. It's Jesus' table. Um, he instituted a meal for us to remember 
and to experience his grace, the bread and the wine. So there's bread and wine behind us. So if you're here today and you would like to be at that table, you're really welcome to come and take bread and take the wine. Instructions on that, we do a little bit of click and collect here at the minute still, um, which means during the song that's going to be sang, I want you to come up and just receive a bread and a wine. Take it back to your table and hold that. And then after the song, I'm going to lead us together in communion, which is the apex of our worship. But before I do that, I just want to read, um, just as Matt and Caitlin begin to, to play, I want to read from Psalm 69, that psalm that I, I referenced earlier. Um, because at this table we have, um, there are echoes of the gospel and of Jesus throughout the Joseph story. Because he is the one that went to the pit of pits on our behalf. And God raised him up again on the third day to resurrection life. He is the one who's gone before us to enact the dream of God in this world. And he is the one whom we center around. And so today, there's not only grace and forgiveness and generosity to receive at this table, but there's also an image here of what is possible when we follow in the footsteps of Christ, laying down our lives for others and serving this world, bringing that bread and hope to those around us. So I'd love you to stand, and I'm going to use Psalm 69 just as a, a psalm to try to center us on all of this. It'll come up on the screen. And it's, it's a lengthy psalm, so I want you to kind of prepare for this one, okay? It's, it's a long one, but it's, it's good to do this. It's good to read scripture. I want you to occupy the psalm. I want you to find yourself in it. I want you to connect with it. I want you to pay attention to the words. I'm going to read it from the, the message translation because it's a beautiful poetic language. And I just want you to invite the Holy Spirit to, to continue to minister in your hearts, continue to speak to you, continue to help you locate yourself in the story. Where are you today? Maybe you're in the pit today, and the good news is that Christ wants to raise you to new life today. Maybe you feel like you're alone, and the gospel story says that God is with you at the lowest point, that God is the one who wants to bring you home. Maybe you're living in exile. Maybe you feel like you've been betrayed or manipulated or accused of something. God wants to bring you home. He wants to seize you to bless others. Maybe that's for you up to a place of significance where he blesses you and uses you to bless others. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Locate yourself. And a warning, there's some gritty language in this psalm. There's gritty language here because when you're in the lowest of lows, sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we want to say, burn it all down, God. Burn it all down. It doesn't mean that God's going to burn it down. It just means that the psalm writer wants to express that. So there's gritty language in this psalm. Let's just write that out because it's helping us locate ourselves. It says this, God, God, save me. I'm in over my head. Quicksand under me. Swamp water over me. I'm going down for the third time. I'm hoarse from calling out for help, bleary-eyed for searching the sky for God. I've got more enemies than hairs on my head. Liars and cheats are out to knife me in the back. What I never stole, what I now give back. God, you know every sin I've committed. My life is a wide-open book before you. Don't let those who look to you and hope be discouraged by what happens to me. Dear Lord, God of the armies, don't let those out looking for me come to a dead end by following me. Please, dear God of Israel, because of you, I look like an idiot. I walk around ashamed to show my face. My brothers shun me like a bum off the street. My family treats me like an unwanted guest. 
I love you more than I can say because I'm madly in love with you. They blame me for everything they dislike about you. When I poured myself out in prayer and fasting, all it got me was contempt. When I put on a sad face, they treated me like a clown. Now drunks and gluttons made up drinking songs about me. And me, I pray, God, it's time for a break. God, answer in love. Answer with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the swamp. Don't let me go under for good. Pull me up from the clutch of the enemy. This whirlwind is sucking me down. Don't let the swamp be my grave. The black hole swallow me. Its jaws clenched around me. Answer me, God, because you love me. Let me see your great mercy. Full face. Don't look the other way. Your servant can't take it. I'm in trouble. Answer me, God. Come close. Get me out of here. Rescue me from this death trap. You know how they kick me around. Pin on me donkey's ears. The dunce's cap. I'm broken by their taunts. Flat on my face. Reduced to nothing. I looked in vain for one friendly face. Not one. I couldn't find one shoulder to cry on. But they put poison in my soup, vinegar in my drink. Let their supper be bait in a trap that snaps shut. May their best friends be snap trappers who skin them alive. May they become blind as bats. Give them the shakes from morning to night. Let them know what you think of them. Blast them down with your red-hot anger. Burn down their houses. Leave them desolate with nobody at home. They gossiped about the one you discipled, disciplined, made up stories about anyone wounded by God. Pile on the guilt. Don't let them off the hook. Strike their names from the list of the living. No rock-carved honor for them among the righteous. I'm hurt. I'm in pain. Give me space for healing and mountain air. Let me shout God's name with a praising song. Let me tell his greatness in a a prayer of thanks. For God, this is better than oxen on the altar, far better than blue ribbon bulls. The poor in spirit see and are glad. Oh, you God seekers, take heart. For God listens to the poor. He does not walk out on the wretched. You heavens, praise him, praise him, earth. Also ocean and all that swims in it. For God is out to help Zion, rebuilding the wrecked towns of Judah. Guess who will live there? The proud owners of the land. No, the children of his servants will get in. The lovers of his name will live in it. Just join me in a prayer. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that you are on our stories today. Everyone in this room today, despite the hell that some may be living through, despite the betrayal, despite the exile, despite the rejection, despite whatever may be taking place, Lord, that is not of you. You are with us. 
and you're drawing us to greener pastures. You're drawing us to mountain air. You're drawing us to a home, to a city, to a place where you restore dignity. I pray by your spirit that you would bring healing and hope today to all of us and especially those who find themselves in the pit, who find themselves alone, that you're with them, that you're with us and that you're restoring all that is broken. You're healing all that is broken. You're bringing wholeness to where there is brokenness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the table behind us that we can taste of grace today and we receive it. We bless your name.